This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Welcome to the CMS Colloquium. I'm Beth Coleman. I'm a professor in um, CMS and the writing program. And I'd like to say a few words of introduction before um, our two speakers begin. Um, Essentially, what they've asked me for is a conversation. They said, we're coming to MIT. We've got a bunch of very smart people here. Let's have a conversation. So they're going to speak. They're going to present their arguments, show us some work, and then uh, this will become a more uh, a dialogic forum. Um, the subject tonight is art and technology, and I'm going to start with a quotation from the uh, law scholar, network scholar, Yokai Benkler, who came as part of the colloquium series some weeks ago. Well, would you mind? Yeah, cool. And Benkler writes, mass media structured the public sphere of the 20th century in all advanced modern societies. Some of what we're looking at in comparative media studies is a change from mass media to a network information economy. And what I would suggest is that art and technology uh, investigates these questions in ways that are dynamic and productive. Certainly different, perhaps, than how science might address them, but I hope what our speakers will um, demonstrate is a long body of work, essentially a hundred years worth of new media art crammed into ten years because things happen so quickly now. If you have not seen the wonderful show at the List Gallery that's up right now, the um, Sensorium show, please do go see it because it addresses many, many of the points of what is this threshold, this liminal moment between art and technology. So uh, without further ado, to talk about new media aesthetics, I will introduce both speakers, and we'll start with Lauren, and then we'll go to John, and then we'll go to conversation. Um, Lauren Cornell is the executive director of Rhizome. She oversees and develops the organization's programs in new media art. Before starting at Rhizome in May 2005, Cornell worked as curator, writer, and arts administrator in New York. She worked in the Andy Warhol Film Project at the Whitney Museum and also served as executive director for Ocularis, um, an organization dedicated to avant-garde and experimental film and video. She's worked as a youth media educator and organizer, um, and her writing on contemporary art, experimental film, and new media has been published in a range of international publications. She's curated uh, screenings and exhibitions or performances for venues such as The Kitchen, Andrew Kreps Gallery, Foxy Production, Participant Inc., and the New Museum of Contemporary Art in New York. Uh, John Apolito is the recipient of Tiffany, Lannan, and American Foundation Awards. He's exhibited artwork with collaborative teammates of Janet Cohen and Keith Frank at the Walker Art Center, ZKM Center for Art and Media, and WNET's Real New York website. He's associate curator. Are you still associate curator at the uh, Guggenheim? Ex-associate. He's ex-associate <laughs> curator at the Guggenheim Museum. Um, and John actually 
I met John in New York when I was a senior editor for a short-lived publication called Art Bite, and we were talking again. It was boom time. It was we were in bubble, so everything art and technology was was going full steam ahead. And John was, I think, the first curator who I ever met whose job it was to, was to talk about new media. What does it mean to engage in museums? How do you collect it? I mean, as, as John will tell you. DVDs, CD-ROMs, they actually hold up less well than paintings, depending on the situation, because you can't play them back as things evolve over time. So um, I met John, he was a curator at the Guggenheim, and he's an artist in this field, and he's also um, an important thinker and writer in this field. His book, Art, oh, excuse me, At the Edge of Arts, is recently published. It's beautiful, and the Roche Library owns it. So you can see it also... Mark Tribe, who couldn't be here tonight, he ran into some um, technical difficulties. New Art Media is Mark Tribe's book, and Mark Tribe is the founder of Rhizome. He's an entrepreneur and an artist and a real lightning rod in this field. He's helped to make it um, visible, networked, and important in terms of art world and the different communities of network. So finishing John's introduction, he curated virtual reality and emerging an emerging medium with John Hanhart, the worlds of Namjoon Pike, and which both at the Guggenheim, the Pike show is an amazing show. His critical writing has appeared in periodicals ranging from Flash Art and the Art Journal to the Washington Post, and at Stillwater Lab, co-founded with Jolene Blaze? Blaze, yeah. Apolito is at work on three projects, Variable Media Network, the Open Art Network, and... Uh, the book that you see in front of you, which is now a finished thing. So we'll turn it over to Lauren, then to John, and please welcome them. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm totally thrilled to be here. I really am. All day I felt like there's so much to talk about, and it's almost been overwhelming. Um, but first I want to say thank you to Beth Coleman, um, whose influence in this field cannot be understated. Um, when she called me and said, come down and talk to me, at, talk to MIT, I thought, well, it's a good chance to get to hang out with you. Um, and also, of course, John, who it's been wonderful to dialogue with all day. Um, so, so Rhizome, I've been director there for um, a year and a half, uh, just about, and it's been a busy year and a half. Um, but the organization was founded, as Beth said, by Mark Tribe, uh, in 1996 when he was living in Berlin. And it was founded uh, at that time as an email list. Um, so just a list that was subscribed to by some of the first artists who were thinking about how the internet could be a creative medium. Um, and there were, you know, it was, this is a time actually when there was a lot of um, sort of flowering of interest in internet art and new media. Um, other lists like The Thing and NetTime and of course Beth's Sound Lab. Um, and they were all sort of investigating how um, this could be, you know, what kind of art the Internet um, could offer and what kind of new relationships um, did it throw up as well. And um, so Rhizome, you know, was and, and still is, you know, this, this space where uh, to explore uh, art practices that are outside of traditional art practices, so outside of museum or gallery culture because... You know, there's a, there's a lot of similarities, I think, with this moment and um, with the moment of early video art. And actually, that's how I got into the field, because I loved early video art. And I said, where are the artists who are doing this today? 
Um, and so just in terms of thinking, well, well, how does internet art practice rewrite exhibition practice and the way that we work together? So these were some of the questions that early artists on Rhizome um, were sorting out. And I'll tell you that they're still the questions that artists are sorting out because 10 years has seen a tremendous flowering of the field, um, but it's a really short time. And there's, you know, someone today, I was in a conversation with someone and sort of asking me for answers and definitions, and I said, I think I just have questions still and realities, you know, of my own experience um, in between, um, you know, Rhizome, which is this community art organization, and also the new museum um, whom we're affiliated with. So we have this really interesting productive position. Anyway, so I'm going to try to talk a little bit about that time that, that Rhizome started and then about Rhizome and then just a couple of... Um, a pieces uh, I'm going to show you just to illustrate what's going on now. But I just want to say again that there's so much to talk about, and I, I suggest that you go to Rhizome and you look at this, um, you know, sort of get into the field and learn more because I'm certainly not going to do justice to the breadth of it today. Um, so, what was it, the, the sort of something I'd like to context first before showing you a couple of pieces from this time is that the internet was an incredibly different place. Um, still written with technical difficulty, no. Um, but it, this, is, this is part of it. This is part of the experience. Um, I have my signal back. There you go. So the internet then was, you know, basically a collection of pages with broken links and, you know, demonstrating the first kind of signs of personal expression and e-commerce. And, of course, you know, these are things that um, people now chuckle at because they're sort of cute and kitsch or something, you know. And actually, I just want to pull up this group, Paper Rad, because this is this group that younger artists who sort of take, you know, riff off of the iconography of this time um, and sort of use all of this, what we think is sort of corny, kitsch digital imagery in their collage work. So, um, paperrad.org. So, there was also, you know, so it was, it was this, this earlier time for the internet, not the mass medium home to some of the most innovative businesses and biggest communities that it is now. Um, and, of course, there was incredibly low um, bandwidth. So these are some of the issues that the artists are dealing with um, at the time. So I'm going to show you a couple of works. Um, thank you to the nice tech staff who helped me so much. Okay, so this is a piece of net cinema by um, the duo Young Hei Chang Heavy Industries, who are from Seoul. It's called Bust Down the Doors. And they sort of show how you can maximize text, low bandwidth. Okay, so that's um, oops. so that's Young Hei Chang, and I, I love that piece, and I, I love them because I feel like 
they can do so much and evoke so much with such a minimal kind of pairing of text and music. Um, and to me, that's um, just as thrilling as watching a Hollywood film, if not more, I promise. Um, and so other artists who are relevant at this time, well, there's, um, there's Jody. Now, this is a really interesting um, duo as well from Germany. And, you know, I've been trying to load this piece in, in the talks today, and it hasn't been working. But basically, um, Jody's work speaks to um, feelings that people have about technology that are not positive. Um, I think, you know, there is always um, or often the experience with technology, maybe not at MIT, but that it is frustrating and that, you know, it strips you of power and that, you know, it is keeping you from doing things that you want and you, you feel helpless. Now, Jody are fantastic because they amplify that feeling. Not many people, you know, who first experienced Jody. I'm going to try to launch this piece. Maybe John can help me, actually. Um, okay, it's not going to work, but cancel. Um, Now I've really lost the plot. Hold on one second. Can someone help me get back to where I was? Do you want me to do this? I can try to show you this big screen version. I was in a different browser that was working. So okay. this was just uh, on launching a particular URL, which if you want to try at home, is oss.jody.org. Now, this experience of me losing my, <laughs> losing my um, track and everything, it's all part of the Jody experience, so I'm not going to be thrown by it. Um, okay, anyway, so, so I don't know. Did you just show it to them? Okay, so you saw what Jody is like, and... Honestly, I don't know why I do this because I always show them at talks and then it just <laughs> it crashes and doesn't work. So anyway, another um, I just want to before moving on and talking about rhizome, I just want to say that there was also um, this trend of information as art that developed at this time, um, sort of famously through um, situations like Itoy, um, who Itoy and also the Yes Men, um, who used um, basically just uh, the, the Yes Men are known as uh, their mission is identity theft. And they basically do sort of slight tweaks to websites. Um, for instance, they have impersonated Dow. Famously, they um, recreated the um, Dow website and were invited onto the BBC as representatives of Dow. And they apologized for the 1993 disaster in Bhopal and promised reparations, and Dow stock went like this. So, just momentarily. So, it's a sort of example of, of using information and, and um, figuring out ways to, um, to be subversive online in this new space. This also speaks to um, a theme that I'm not going to talk about, but which is um, e-commerce, um, which is a sort of another popular um, kind of internet art. So, um, so this was, you know, the, the work that I'm showing you is from an, a sort of earlier period, which I, people, uh, the, the few historians of the field, of which John is one, but I don't know if we've ever said this, call that period sort of classical net.art. It's a, a period in which the scene was small and intimate and there was trust and people were working together and it was for, before the dot-com, you know, boom and bust. Um, and before organizations also like Rhizome, critical to our history, we were an artistic platform that was free, but we also became an institution and an institution with a membership policy, which is really key to our history um, as well. Um, so that was uh, work from that period. Now, Rhizome over the, I, I'm, I'm happy to say, as you can see, it's our 10-year anniversary this year. Um, 
And I, I'm really proud to look back at Rhizome's history and to see how we've grown with the field and how we've really retained our investment in community and sort of user-generated, community-generated um, art and discourse. Um, but we also hold this singular position in that we're now affiliated with the new museum, so we're sort of attached to the art world in this way where we have a different model because we're not curated. We're, you know, we, we, we are a hybrid of sort of a, a curated. We have, you know, some parts of, of Rhizome are curated by Rhizome staff and organized. But then we also have, you know, email lists and an archive that is just all comes from um, community content. Um, so Rhizome, you know, has really um, grown with the field. We've grown from covering that, you know, um, early group of internet artists to um, really sort of serving the um, new media art field now broadly. And I, I use new media to sort of encompass, um, you know, internet art, digital art, lots of different ways that people um, carve up work um, that deals with internet network technologies and, and online culture. So what do we do? Okay, so we have... Um, our core programs are commissions. Um, this is sort of on our more curated side because Rhizome provides institutional support to artists working with internet and network technologies. We're one of the few organizations that gives grants in this area. Um, they're small. Uh, they're from $900 to $2,500. And yet, uh, I think they're very meaningful because they're some of the only grants uh, around. And we also work with the artists, and that's one of my favorite things that we do. We also have... Um, many different kinds of exhibitions. Rhizome staff curates exhibitions. We invite our community to curate exhibitions. And we do them in a wide array of contexts. So this, for instance, is a show, you know, um, it's called The Gift Show. Our curator, Marissa Olson, put it together. It's all about GIFs, um, which are a sort of early form of file format. And it was installed at RX Gallery in San Francisco, but it was also exhibited on MySpace and has hundreds of friends. <laughs> Sign up. Um, and then we also have our email list and publications, and our email lists are where our community um, shares ideas and shares projects, and that feeds into our blog, and we also archive that in um, one of our archives called the Tech Space. We have two publications um, that uh, also cover the field. Um, and actually, this is something um, that I think is also really important, is encouraging curatorial practice and also um, editorial um, practice around new media. So we work with emerging and established writers and get them to cover all the different corners of the field internationally. So we have two archives. The Art Base has over 1,700 works of digital art. They're all viewable online, which is special um, about, the, about this archive. Um, and then also the tech space, um, which is, as I just said, is an archive of all of the writing on our site. So right now, I was just talking to um, a wonderful student here, Andreas, about this project. Um, we're doing a, a metadata project. So the art base was founded in 1998 by Mark Tribe. Um, and at that time, he came up with a system of metadata that now <coughs> carves up all of Rhizome content. This is some of the keywords right here. And since that time, the, that taxonomy has not changed. And so um, I, when I came in last year, I thought, you know, we, the staff and I talked and we thought we really, this, this vocabulary cannot hold um, the kind of breadth of new media being made right now. So we embarked on this project called the Metadata Project. Um, and we had a big conversation with our community and we said, you know, we want to change this and what do you think? And then we convened actually sort of professionals in new media um, preservation and 
uh, curating to talk to us. And what we decided that we were going to do, and we're actually producing it right now, um, is to add a social tagging element and also to carve up our existing keywords into um, broad level categories that we can then hopefully share with other archives. So a reason that we also wanted to start out with all of these conversations is because digital archiving is such a huge uh, issue right now and so many people are doing it and so many people are thinking about vocabulary and we wanted to um, make it collaborative. Um, so we're doing that right now. An interesting part of this project is that we thought, well, let's get, we, maybe we can get new words from our community. And when we ha were having conversations on our lists, we said, well, what words do you want to be added? Tell us. And nobody responded. So then we said, okay, well, actually, we'll just use the tagging to let people tell us. And so, you know, we thought when a certain word gets popular enough, it will become part of our controlled vocabulary. But like a lot of things that Rhizome does, you know, we're going to launch this in a particular phase, we're going to experiment, we're going to see how it goes, and then we're going to modify it. It's a project that I'm excited about. Um, okay, so now, um, and then, you know, other things that we do. We do so much, we're a three-person staff. Um, um, we have a sort of um, calendar and opportunities and resources in different ways for people to, um, to connect uh, to the field. Um, so let me get back to, to this. So I just wanted to show you um, a couple of other um, a couple of other works um, that uh, are sort of just little glimpses into what is ha what is happening now. Um, so you know, like I said, this over the past ten years, um, the field has really flowered. Um, and we had this panel recently, and we called it Net Aesthetics 2.0. And it was a sort of joke on the web 2.0, um, which is this, you know, supposed next paradigm of the internet. People variously buy into that or don't. Um, and, you know, so we were saying, well, what are, what, what are um, the aesthetics uh, now? Um, and so some of the things that we talked about were, um, Contagion. Uh, do people know what that means? Contagion or viral media? I'm sure that's a popular thing here. Yeah. Okay. So um, these are a couple of con um, contagious projects. Fundraise. This was um, a project in which you could see, um, you know, the, the who your neighbors were voting for. You could choose, enter a zip code, and you could see who is Democrat or Republican. Um, and then, so then this is this project that, that this. A lot of contagious research came out of iBeam in New York, and they then ran this big competition called Contagious Media, and they had people send in sites to them. And this is the site that won. This is always really surprises me. It's called Forget Me Not Panties, in which you implant an RFD chip in your girlfriend's um, underwear. Um, anyway, so, but you know, the point of contagious media is that it's not, you know, it, it, it's almost confusing as to why it gets popular, but the point is that it does, and the point is is that there are uh, networks out there, what Jonah Peretti from IBM called the board at work network, that will take the time to pass this along and let it get popular. Um, so there's that kind of viral aspect. Um, and then, you know, John and I have been, you know, talking about participatory culture, which is sort of an overarching frame for work that's made now um, on the net. And this is, um, this is a sort of broad way of talking about, and you can stare, you know, I'm not going to get to any of these, so just <laughs> look at them and go back. But um, it's, it's, it's a sort of, you know, broad way of talking about the sharing, the remixing, the open source, um, all of the different ways that, you know, people are collaborating peer-to-peer um, -peer online. 
So a couple of nice projects in this um, genre. Um, Recap by Rick Silva, um, a remix of the cult, grass, cult classic graffiti movie Wild Style. <laughs> Okay, Corey Archangel's Clouds. Um, so this is a project. Corey is, Corey is an artist who, um, he works in a way like Rhizome because he does work in the art world, but he's also very committed to online culture. This is a project he did called Super Mario Clouds in which he hacked a Nintendo cartridge and he took out everything except for the clouds, which scroll. Um, and then the other special thing about this project is that, so he showed that in a gallery and you know, there is, um, which sort of makes sense. He showed it online, but okay, thanks. But um, it's also, you know, there's, there's galleries um, ask for objects, and, you know, they maybe even sometimes put pressure on artists to make objects. I know, though, that Corey actually enjoys working in galleries um, and um, is hoping for a long career with ga in galleries. <laughs> but, um, but and, and so the other part of that project is, is that he, you know, he showed it in a gallery, but then he and he sold it, but he also and in the Whitney Biennial, but then he put the source code online, which is different um, than you know the way that say you know a painter showing in a gallery, but then putting you know maybe his mood or his whatever it was that that inspired him, the instructions for that painting online. Um, so that's an, another sort of way of of taking um, and then also contributing back to a sort of online shared culture. Um, Okay, so I have five minutes left. Um, so I want to talk also about um, something that really excites me about uh, new media. Another reason why I ended up in this field is thinking about how new technologies um, create new relationships and how art is a language um, to interpret and think about those. And so, you know, there's so much now going on um, in terms of uh, internet and networked culture. There's social software, there's locative media, there's wearable technologies. I can't get to all of it now, but I wanted to point to the sort of wealth of works being made about um, social software. Well, here's one, Automated Beacon. Um, I think this project is beautiful. It's just um, not live scrolling um, searches um, from Google. Barnoculars, Runescape, who knew? Droopy eyelid. <laughs> um, this is, let's see, hold on one second. Um, My Own Space is this project by this internet, uh, this, this hacker, French hacker, Jean-Baptiste Bale, in which he basically totally replicated MySpace, and all of the ads are links to artist projects, so his friends' projects, or to you know, uh, music festivals, so sort of internet sound music festivals. Um, and then he has people who have sort of, you know, people have their own pages on this site. So, you know, I think something that John was talking about really eloquently today was how the internet, um, and this is really key to Rhizome's history as well, provides um, a real forum for artists to work together collaboratively. Um, but I think some of, a lot of projects now sort of, you know, think about, you know, step back and think about these kind of social softwares and either tease them or try to mimic their structure. Um, so lastly, I'd say that something that is really important um, 
to new media is the, is the line between um, tools and art. Um, and so, for instance, oops, so like personal Kyoto, um, this project um, measures, um, right, so it's used to um, track electric usage. Um, and so you can sort of monitor um, pollution. And then um, this is another project by Michael Mandyberg. Converts all prices from U.S. dollars into the equivalent value in barrels of crude oil. Um, and then I don't. Um, I'm just gonna do a little googling on your time, and then I'm gonna wrap up. Okay, let me just show this one thing, and then I'll wrap up. Um, and then there is, you know, people like uh, Graffiti Research Lab who create um, new kind of tools for graffiti. I'm gonna turn this down. So I'm going to let this play for a second. Um, a question I'd sort of like to throw out to John is, um, so I'm observing an important uh, um, internet arts relationship with uh, museums and galleries and saying that, you know, we walk this sort of fine line every day, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I think it's valid that internet art be shown in this context. So thank you. I'm going to swap out the machines. Okay. Okay. Once we get to more general conversation, Lauren, is it okay if we just get John's machine in and you yeah. can pull things up on that? Yeah. And John, it's okay with you? Yeah. All right, cool. Answer, I could spend the rest of the time answering that question that Lauren just asked, but uh, let me instead delay by um, bringing up some other issues, and hopefully we'll get to it in the conversation. Thanks, Beth, uh, for having me here. Um, as she said, we've got this relationship sort of in the past of, of being a real uh, microphone. Microphone? Oh, okay. Um, how's that? Anybody? Um, I, she was uh, one of the best editors at uh, um, uh, one of the first and sort of foremost art magazines devoted to digital art um, in New York in the 90s, uh, and let me get away with some pretty screwy stuff. So um, I'm hoping today to, to try to screw things up a little bit uh, more, um, uh, and a addressing really the, the question of institution, I think that um, uh, Beth, uh, or uh, uh, Lauren brought up the question of institution and rhizome. How do you get uh, from, create a new institution based on networks like, like uh, networked art? And rhizome is an institution devoted to networked art. But I'm going to sort of look back at the question of other kinds of networks and um, whether um, they uh, can be adapted to support new media. And I'm going to use that contested term advisedly. I'd be happy to have a food fight about it after uh, my presentation, <laughs> if you like. Um, but, or whether they do harm, and if there is a way to have them do good rather than bad. Because I think there's a lot of people in this room who probably uh, either now uh, are in these kinds of institutions that can do good or bad, or may someday uh, soon be in them, whether it's the university, the museum, or uh, another uh, field uh, such as uh, the kind of pr um, uh, intellectual property. 
Um, because what I'm going to argue is that many of you in this room may unwittingly buy into or invest in a model of hierarchic property, uh, preservation, or professorship that serves as a threat to the survival of new media, and, and hence the title of my talk, Three Threats. Um, the first threat, too many archivists and not enough animateurs. What the heck does that mean? I'll get to it in a moment. Uh, this is a threat about preservation, and it particularly pertains to those of you who go on to archives or museums, and I've spent far too much time in them. This uh, work uh, by Group Z uh, in Belgium uh, was created in 1994, um, a project called HOME. The centralized storage par paradigm of museums uh, completely fails for work like this. It's the default. It's what we all expect. To preserve culture, you put it in a crate in a climate-controlled vault. Well, um, what would happen if you had the foresight in 1994 to preserve the work Group Z, thinking preserve, on a floppy disk? Remember those floppy disks? Okay. Um, if you did, this is my guess as far as the timeline goes. I think 1995, uh, the work no longer functioned with current browsers, and that's true. This worked on Netscape 1.1, but not Netscape 1.2. Oops. Uh, 1997, many of the external links will expire. We're familiar with that link rot, right, 404-ing. By 2002, you'd be hard-pressed to find a floppy drive. At least I was in 2002 uh, when the iMac came out. In 2010, you may have trouble reading a disk formatted with Windows 95. By 2015, the floppy may have demagnetized or delaminated, and you know in the future that's going to happen. So in other words, to archive a work in a crate is to consign it to a death sentence, uh, at least when the work is new media, as in the case of this networked artwork um, of the kind that um, Rachel uh, alluded to in, um, in, in the kind of classic net art. And we might say, oh, well, now... Net artists are more sophisticated. They have you know, newer, fancier tools, and, and so they don't have that problem. Wrong. Now they have a much worse problem because they have all the dependencies of the newer, fancier tools. Right? This work was actually created in HTML and a couple images, and it still breaks. So storage equals death. That's the trouble with archives. That's the trouble with archivists. Now, I don't want to get too carried away because I like archives. I spend time in them. Some of my best friends are archivists. But... Uh, <laughs> My experience suggests, uh, and, and, and there's a good role for them to play, um, you need to have archival information like screenshots, interviews, documentation, if you want to recreate something in the future. But um, the problem is this notion of sort of cloistered repositories. You, know, you go to one of these archives, it's like visiting the medieval scriptorium where you, you wander in and find the sacred scroll, you know, the one ancient Atari that plays that video game or whatever. Uh, and... That's really leaving something important out of the preservation paradigm. Uh, it doesn't do any good to archive you know, a score for Bach-Goldberg variations if there aren't any harpsichords around anymore and there isn't anybody who knows how to transcribe a harpsichord work for piano or for whatever the new medium is. Okay? There needs to be more than just the material around to preserve it. For media of the internet age, the only alternative to storing these kind of fragments somehow or some kind of you know, nostalgic reference to some lost relic, like you know, a saint's knuckle in a reliquary at the Vatican, is to really accept that, well, if you're going to preserve something, it's got to change. It's got to change in the process. In particular, the medium's got to change because the medium's going to die. So how can we do that? How can we imagine a way that something can change without 
being, keeping the material? Well, one option is emulation, okay? And um, who are the people who are good at emulation? Uh, in the world of, uh, of, of sort of historical reenactment, we call them animateur, animators, okay? It's a, 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 a fun thing to do, as you can tell by all these blue coats out on the, out on the, on the, on the commons there. Animateur are those loony folks who, you know, get together and sort of, you know, reenact Wright Brothers' first flight or, you know, whatever it is, medieval jousting tournaments. Um, Robin Murphy, who was one of the early contributors to Rhizome and, and one of the Internet's really, Internet Art's first historians, if you will, he, he once said in a, in a kind of offhand discussion, and again, this is the kind of thing that Rhizome is good for, uh, that animateur might suggest a way to think about preservation. I think he was absolutely right. Because they're really different than archivists. They've got what's missing. Okay? So archivists minimize risks. Climate control, seismic you know, detectors, and this and that. Animateur maximize them. They're out jousting you know, with giant poles. Um, archivists wear white gloves. Animateur favor chainmail. Uh, in other words, animateur are to archivists as astronauts are to astronomers. They're the people who go out there and try it. They do it. They're willing to no- do more than just sit it, you know, look at it, but actually try to revivify it, Frankenstein it back together. That said, there, there are two types of animateur, and we need both of them. The first tries to replicate the look and feel of the original work exactly. Okay, so down to the, you know, from the, from the, uh, the bayonet to the the boot buckle, They're, they've got, you know, perfect uh, uh, sort of recreation. Even if it's not the original material, um, it's exactly the same kind of um, look to it. And, and that gives us a model for thinking about preserving new media that doesn't focus on the material as kind of, you know, atoms, but on the material as experienced. Uh, and when we looked at a, a good example of this uh, back in, um, let's see, was it 2004 or 2005? Uh, the Guggenheim did a, P, a show called um, uh, Seeing Double in which we recreated old works from the past. This is 1982, uh, the Earl King, uh, one of the first inter- interactive installations. On the right-hand side uh, is a, um, let's see if I can, oh well. On the right-hand side is, a, is the original version with 104 cables, an old uh, uh, Sony ZX uh, uh, or Z80 uh, computer with like you know, 5 megahertz, no, no hard drive, uh, and a, an ancient touchscreen, and on the left, the recreated version, running the same code. Okay, that's what emulation means. Uh, running on a single Linux box with half a terabyte of of, of uh, hard drives instead of the original uh, analog laserdisc players. So a huge difference in terms of the technology, and that's why we kind of left these kind of windows in the installation so you could see. But the goal was to replicate exactly the experience. And if the survey we conducted of, of uh, viewers, uh, visitors to the installations, any guide, it did so. But that's not the only kind of animateur. Some take a few liberties with the recreation. Okay. So um, this guy, okay, or, or you know, these people uh, really are thinking about, well, how do I recreate the experience even if it's in a completely different medium and even if it looks completely different? So um, some loonies uh, reenacted the Apollo 13 landing in a, you know, a multi-user virtual environment. Um, that, okay, that's kind of out there, uh, figuratively and literally. But on the other hand, um, for an artist like uh, 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 Mark Napier, a well-known internet artist who created this work, Net Flag, that allows viewers to recreate uh, the flags uh, of uh, basically by adding together different elements of, of uh, flags from other nations. 
he realized, hey, it's Java applet. You know, Java's already a little dicey running on different platforms. So what's the likelihood that that's going to be around in 20 years? On the other hand, it's very clear what it was he wanted it to do. The, the interface is very easy to kind of specify. And there's no reason someone couldn't go ahead and, you know, recreate it in, you know, Java++ in the year 2020. So that reinterpretation, more controversial, more sort of license involved, but also more powerful. Finally, uh, it's really hard to do this. I mean, even whether it's reinterpretation to know you're doing it right, or this emulation to, to, to make sure you've got the, you know, the original code and everything. Um, apart from the technical skills to, say, write a CPM interpreter, uh, you also have to be able to kind of channel the artist, you know, figure out what it is they would have wanted. And to do this, the Variable Media Network, uh, which is devoted to these novel uh, preservation paradigms, has developed a questionnaire that basically surveys the preferences of artists, what things have to stay the same, what things can change. Um, I can talk more about that later if there's time. But suffice to say that I think these are ways that we can kind of up the contributions of animateurs and recognize the value of archivists without relying on them too much. The next threat, I think, is a little bigger. Too many attorneys, not enough activists. You'll notice by the uh, sort of relative size of those, uh, that Venn diagram there that I think this is a bigger threat. Too many attorneys, so what's wrong with them? Well, uh, we've got a world that... Uh, that uh, Lauren described as you know, musicians resampling each other, video artists remixing each other. We've got uh, hackers working together on open code projects, activists uh, organizing grassroots campaigns. That's what the internet is about, right? Well, um, that's fine, but um, this depends on a sort of you know, frictionless network in which MP3s and code and so forth can zip around and be you know, kind of triggered and mashed together. Uh, but the entrenched media monopolies that like to... Um, think that they can control uh, the way culture emerges in media space, aren't really interested in frictionless networks, right? Um, their business model is actually based on maximizing the points of contact because they are middlemen, right? Okay, so if I can just zip something over to someone in the back room over there, uh, then uh, all these people in the middle don't make any money off the process, right? But if I'm a musician and I have to, you know, sort of uh, pay the producer, and the producer has to pay the publisher, and the publisher has to pay the rights holders, and down the line, hey, everybody makes a little bit off of it. And if there's a lawyer standing with his hand out at every point of that transaction saying, I can help you with that, then the lawyers are making lots of money, right? Uh, because the more friction, the more they get paid, which is something you notice if you deal a lot with lawyers in negotiations, as unfortunately some of us have. So these media conglomerates have to hire a lot of lawyers, and when they're not busy kind of brokering all these, you know, kind of transactions, uh, they keep themselves busy by suing people, okay? So they sue uh, internet artists like the eToy and Joy Garnet examples. They sue composers, uh, remix composers like John Oswald and Negative Land. Uh, they even sue software developers like New Linux. Uh, so, uh, you know, this gets really extreme. Um, to give one homegrown example, uh, many of you may know Leonardo magazine and, and Roger Molina. You may know about the trademark suit over the name Leonardo, which was chosen by a French finance company. The French finance company sued Leonardo in French court, basically claiming that why should this magazine devoted to art and science at MIT have any use for the name Leonardo when it more obviously pertains to this French finance company? Um, it sounds, as absurd as it sounds to us, the French police raided uh, Roger Molina's home in Paris, 
scaring the bejesus out of his 80-year-old grandmother and his 8-year-old son, and confiscated any computers and documents and so forth they could find. I mean, this is the landscape we live in now of intellectual property. It's a landscape in which intellectual property lawyers are running amok. What can we do about it? Well, or what, you know, I've sort of claimed it has harm to producers. I think it also has harm to learners, right? Here we are at an educational institution. Um, the, the little cartoon class, what can you tell me what I preserved in this jar? No, it's not a pig or baby cow. It's the last student who got caught cheating on one of my tests. You know, keep your eyes on your own paper. We have this, this sort of uh, uh, paranoia in academia now about students cheating. Uh, we've got the RIAA, the record industry, suing 12-year-old girls. We've got uh, universities spending uh, tens of thousands of dollars on Turnitin anti-plagiarism software, money that could be spent on encouraging students to share information. Because what we're crying, what we're, our reaction to this world of, of digital networks and frictionless information is to convert our, our body language of learning and teaching from this, have some information please, to this. Keep your eye on your own paper. Don't look up. Okay? That's the cost. That's the cost that uh, this uh, overpressive, in my mind, uh, intellectual property regime is having on uh, the otherwise kind of learning that's possible with networks. Uh, what can we do about it? Well, one thing we can do is offer open access. And MIT has taken a very important role in this realm, uh, sponsored by folks like Hal Abelson, uh, open access to research papers, open access to classroom syllabi, uh, such as the OpenCourseWares project, uh, it really promises to do a lot of good. And, and not just good in a kind of altruistic way, but also to increase impact. So according to a recent study, uh, the see if I can get it right here. Uh, when you publish in an open access journal, and by that I mean something that's accessible for free online as opposed to paying through the wazoo to get some Elsevier journal that most uh, libraries can't even afford. Even their professors want to assign an essay to their classes. They can't because there's no way the university that sponsors them can afford it. Um, if, you, if you give something to an open access journal, uh, everyone can access it. And what's interesting is that citation counts suggest uh, 50 to 250% greater citation rates for articles that are in open access journals. Right? So that would seem like, hey, we should all do this. Um, uh, well, um, unfortunately, um, one of the reasons that that doesn't happen, uh, we'll talk about in a, in a few moments, but open access is a good thing. I don't think it's enough, though. And uh, I'll give Creative Commons as, as the example. I, I love Creative Commons. They do innovative, really wonderful work. But... Uh, when you get a, uh, an MP3 that you find online or, uh, or a picture of a sunset you want to use in your website or a script or whatever it might be, and it's Creative Commonsified, you can use it and remix it, and that's good. That's sharing. But there's a profound loss of opportunity here. Uh, if I put up my MP3 and someone uses it as a soundtrack for their video, I may think that's cool. That's why I put it there. But I probably will never know. What's to tell me that someone else reused my material? Sure, I could put attribution, okay? But what's the chance that, you know, I'm going to somehow Google into my name in some, you know, uh, YouTube version reposting of that video or if someone uses it in an offline way? 
it's very unlikely that I'm going to like Google my name and find every occurrence or, or sift them out through all the other versions of you know of the Google returns to find how someone uh, re you know reused my stuff. So it's very good for accessing culture. It's not so good about accessing the process. You know, it's not just about opening the access. It's opening the process, allowing and stimulating moments of of collaboration. I'm going to show you a project that is, in fact, based on uh, stimulating moments of collaboration. It's called The Pool. It's something that we designed at the University of Maine. Uh, and um, it is a whole bunch of stuff related to a, a whole bunch of art, code, and text that is meant to be shared, uh, but um, that is shared in such a way that other people can find it and reuse it and find each other in the process. So uh, what you're looking at is sort of um, a particular slice of the pool. In this case, it's, uh, it's projects that have to do with community. And um, it looks like it's, I'm not getting the whole screen on there, but that's OK. Uh, I've added a, 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 a criterion that sort, sorts by community. So all these projects have something to do with community. And um, I can increase the legibility a little bit here to make them a little bit easier to read. OK, so what's going on? On the left-hand side, which, of course, I just took off the screen, are unrelated projects. Un or I should say unrated projects. The pool not only includes a lot of them and allows you to filter them, but it also does something with them. It provides uh, opportunities for people to rate, them, rate each other, uh, rate their projects, I should say, and then it maps them accordingly. So this is sort of like the unrated section. Um, you can learn more about them by rolling over them and so forth. But they're kind of wallflowers. They haven't really been chosen yet. Um, on the other hand, on the right-hand side, are projects that uh, have been rated. And it uses the metaphor of swimming. Uh, if you, you know, good stuff rises to the top. So the redder something is, the worse it's been rated. The greener something is, the better it's been rated. Uh, I think it's probably clearer if I choose maybe a criterion that, um, that has fewer people. You can also double up criteria. Um, I'm going to choose news because I'm actually going to pull a project out of here that relates to news. Okay, few, fewer people pieces. So um, this, now I'm going to kind of, uh, okay, so I've suggested that this vertical axis is approval. The higher, the better in terms of all the ratings. The problem is, let's suppose that, you know, Lauren and, and Beth both put in a project. And Lauren got like 10 reviews and all of them get averaged to an 8, 8 out of 10. That's great. She's doing well. Lauren put in, got one review for her work, and it got a 10. It was her mom. Okay? So it doesn't seem fair that they should be rated the same. So in addition to the, the rating just as an approval, we graph based on recognition, how many uh, uh, reviews a project has gotten. And I'm just going to sort of uh, crank up the accuracy here on the axes. It makes it a little less legible, but a little easier to see. Now you see that even though things like Ground Zero and Nick News Information Chat are uh, slightly higher rated than Webcast, Webcast had the most reviews, so it's sort of the most solid. So if you get something in the upper right corner, it's bound to be good. If you get something in the lower left corner or lower right or upper left corner, you can't really tell. Lower right corner, you know it completely sucks. Uh, you can find out more information. You can do title searches and more different kinds of filtering. You can also, once you find a work that you think you're interested in, you can bring up information about it. You can spider through the different versions. In the pool, we look at intent, approach, and release. And you can rate all the different artifacts at the different stages. 
you can see the reviews and you know find out how people felt about them technically or conceptually. There is a, uh, a, a trust metric built in so that if you if your projects are rated high technically, then your technical ratings of other people's projects count for a lot. Um, there's also a, a feature that allows you to look at an individual person. But we had some issues here about credibility because we didn't want to make it into a game of, you know, oh, I've got an 8.4, oh, I've only got a 6.3. On the other hand, we also wanted it to be useful. So you could find collaborators. You could find people who, for example, had high technical ratings. So at first we said, okay, we'll just let people choose that themselves. Uh, oh, I'm an 8, I'm a 2, I'm a 5. Uh, then we found that some people, of course, claimed to be a 10, technically, and all their projects broke. So it didn't seem fair that they got trashed, technically, in the pool by the pool community. And this is a community of, of, of students and professors together, working together. And yet, they, they appear to have this very high rating. So um, I'll just click on an individual here, give you a sense of it. So we decided to do something about that. And what we did is this kind of uh, reddish lines here. Uh, so here's John Bell's assessment of himself. Gives himself a pretty good technical rating and pretty decent conceptual rating and a middle-of-the-road perceptual rating. The red line is the reality distortion meter. <laughs> so if the pool community agrees with you, it's nice and flat. If the pool community says, whoa, no, there's quite a difference, a discrepancy between what the database says based on all the users' ratings and what you say, whoa, whoa, wavy. Now, this isn't so bad. That's kind of like medium wavy. Some people get like, wah, 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 wah. But this is an attempt to create a system where people can find collaborators, find each other, and see how they use each other's projects. There's another element of this that shows how things are related and, and have been intermixed with each other. There are other uh, systems that do this, notably uh, CC Mixter, Creative Commons Mixter, originally Mixter created by MIT students. So um, this is, is one uh, kind of, um, of, of system that is, does more than simply detach people from each other. It, it uses remixing not as an opportunity to just sort of pull out some file from the ether and make it into your own thing. You get to do that, but you also make a link back to the person who originally contributed that file. Okay, so I think unlocking access and unlocking process are both key to dealing with this problem of too many attorneys and not enough act activists, keeping the net open. Finally, though, and I think most controversial, especially for this room, uh, one of the threats looming in the future, too many academics and not enough artists. You notice by the sort of relative size of the circles that I don't think it's a grave threat yet. But there's lots of grad students out there, actually lots of grad students in here, um, who may be studying, analyzing, writing papers, so forth, but are they really contributing to the health of new media? And as one of those old fogies who you know, thinks about new media the when it was old, I want it to survive, I want it to live, I want it to prosper. Okay, what's going wrong? Why am I worried about academics? Well, if you've ever noticed, those old fogies, a lot of the list of the top new media critics are also new media artists, okay? There's a list of a couple of them off the top of my head when I was writing this up, and it's got, you know, most of the most important people in my mind um, who, who are writing today, from, you know, Lev Manovich to Alex Galloway to Natalie Jeremichenko. Uh, these people have defined the field both as artists and as critics. That's because they discovered a long time ago that HTML could be used for criticism and creation, right? The same tool was used for both. Um, other academic disciplines, you know, they created things, uh, inked these articles destined for, you know, dusty shelves in libraries. 
Well, these folks were out there like, you know, fighting flame wars on email lists and, you know, contributing to blogs and comments and back and forth. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, these sort of uh, exciting real-time, you know, conflicts and collaborations and so forth really were important and continue to be important to the field. It's not the same thing to write an article for, you know, like a peer-reviewed journal. It's also true, I think, that sometimes the applications, you know, sort of the artworks, are just as, if not more influential, than what's written about them. And I mean that in a kind of theoretical, sort of understanding way. So Matthew Fuller is a great uh, example of a wonderful theorist. He writes about Microsoft Word and its limitations and software dogma and so forth. It's, it's great to read his stuff. But it's nothing like opening his browser uh, WebStalker. Spend 15 seconds or you know, two minutes with WebStalker, and you learn more about the nature of networks than by reading his entire book you know, about ideology and browser wars. So I think that that's because new media, by their nature, enact rather than represent. It's what Jolene Blay in our, the book that we wrote uh, at the Edge of Art calls um, executability, that new media are executable. They do something. Uh, and um, they do that, that word executable operates on a lot of levels. Obviously, executable code is behind a lot of this work, but it's also executable in a class, in, in, in a sort of um, legal context or executable in a political context. Uh, we can look at examples of these later, but suffice to say that executable works aren't content to sit in a classroom any more than they're content to sit in a gallery, on a pedestal, uh, or an auction block. You know, cell phones are out there deposing presidents. Uh, digital fiction has dumbfounded surveillance networks. Uh, speculative software has swayed court cases. These things go out in the world and they change things. They're not just talking to each other. They're engaged in the actual world. But things may be about to change if this sort of new media becomes institutionalized in an academic uh, kind of dialogue. And um, the most obvious example of this is when people talk about new media these days, uh, this sort of new uh, group of you know, exciting upcoming academics. I get really excited to hear and see what they're going to do. PowerPoint lectures. Oh, please, no more PowerPoint about participatory, you know, nonlinear media. I mean, PowerPoint's a broadcast medium that would make Rupert Murdoch drool, right? So why are we giving PowerPoint lectures about something that should be networked, right? I mean, Okay, I'm talking up here. You guys are all listening. This is pretty broadcast. But if you say, hey, wait, what about back to side two? I can you know, kind of jump around this website. I can put the website online. It can be spidered. It can be cut. It can be pasted. It can be Googled. Right? PowerPoint is like, ugh. Uh, don't get me started. So, uh, <laughs> sorry, I was already started. The other problem, of course, is that you know, academia has a, a, a powerful, uh, and even more powerful, uh, and other forces against change besides just PowerPoint. There's also the peer review process, what I think of as an artificially restrictive sense of peer influence and definition. In an academic context, peer means, or can mean, depending on your field, one of a handful of people familiar with your subdiscipline. Okay, so to influence them, peer influence, right? Influence them is to publish a journal article that, you know, maybe a few dozen of them read, maybe if you're lucky, a hundred, right? That would be cool. In a new media context, peer is measured in seven digits instead of two, right? You get on Nutella, you're connected to a million other computers. Peer means peer-to-peer. -peer. That is a lot of people, not like 50. Um, influence uh, means 
an effect on an entire executable system. So when I hear peer influence in academia, sometimes it reminds me of this Monty Python skit of the Royal Society for putting things on top of other things. You know, it's sort of a reminder that one of the synonyms for academic is irrelevant. So we've got to break outside of this very limited sense of what peer influence means. And remember that new media is about executing our work in the real world, not just in an ivory tower. Uh, on the other hand, Google isn't really the answer. We don't want it to be a popularity contest. Uh, in um, one way to kind of you know, try to avoid say, oh, well, it's, it's, it's not about the ivory tower. It's about what's happening out there on the network, like where all that new media is happening, right? All the great stuff that Lauren was talking about. Where Lev Manadrich is posting his essays. You know, he, he publishes them in books years after he publishes them on Rhizome. Uh, so, okay, so why don't we look for a net native matrix? Well, we don't want to be Napsterized or Googlified. We don't want to just turn into kind of a popularity contest, a grafting of, of this kind of rank on top of what is really a network. Otherwise, you know, uh, the sort of... Um, you know, future of, uh, of new media scholarship and preservation is going to be a bunch of Nigerian bank scams and Paris Hilton videos. Right? That, that shouldn't be the, the, the only default, the only way that it can go. On the other hand, we can't fall back on traditional academic criteria, I believe. We need a new way forward. Um, and um, I proposed uh, and worked with people uh, who are thinking about a distributed publication system one that doesn't end up in some dusty shelf in a library that you, know, you have to subscribe to to get to, but can actually be found not even just on a website, like, oh, there's a blog, but can actually be found wherever the sort of stimulus or interest for that scholarship arises. What do I mean? Well, I mean, you could have a website, and someone could um, write scholarship or criticism or reaction to your website, whether it's creative or, or critical, right on your website. Oh, wait a minute, I'm not going to let them have access to my website. Well, it turns out they don't need it. Uh, here's an example. Uh, this is a project um, originally designed by a, a student who I work with, John Bell. Um, and it was originally designed in reaction to th things like political and science stories that get misrepresented in the press. So here's an MSNBN, MS, whatever the one of those <laughs> corporate monopolies is. Stories on... Um, an alleged school shooting plot that was discovered on MySpace, and then you know whatever happened, and so the, the sort of um, potential for uh, for uh, uh, kind of um, how would I put it under uh, the uh, uh, misrepresentation here is what is the role of MySpace? Was it good? Was it bad? So forth. So it's something that can be disagreed about. And if you read the mainstream press and have expertise in you know whatever it is, global warming or social networks, you see a lot of things you wish you could talk back to them, because this is basically you know. Uh, Microsoft and NBC trying to turn the web back into a broadcast medium. Well, John Bell's little bookmarklet turns it back into dialogue. So um, he created a project called Repost. Uh, it brings up a little div in the page that you can move around. It's fun. And um, it has a dialogue based on this article and whether the so you know sort of experts who've been identified to write on this think it's good or bad. Um, and you can uh, there's all kinds of trust metrics that are involved in this. Uh, you claim a certain expertise. If you there's kind of double-edged sword. You have more effect on the rating of the article if you uh, claim a high expertise. But on the other hand, if your other reviewers disagree with you, it trashes your credibility. So you kind of put yourself out there on a limb, you're more likely to get nuked, uh, which is not the case in a lot of trust metric systems. You can also gather all these uh, stories into you know, RSS feeds on a single site and see you know, what stories have been rated on what account. Okay, well, this has to do with mainstream news. How could it have anything to do with you know, media art? Ooh, okay. Well, um, you can also turn this into 
uh, something based on uh, a kind of history. Okay, so in particular, a history that goes up to the present. Namjoon Paik, grandfather of video art, super grandfather of new media, whatever you want to call him, very influential, died last year. Well, um, are we only going to write about the past or are we going to write about the present? Are we going to write about what we see in today's world that seems to kind of embody his aesthetic? Uh, Repake is a project based on, um, on Repost that, uh, that um, I'm hoping to debut with John this coming year. It's really John's project. I'm just stealing it. Uh, and, um, and it allows you to kind of comment on, on Paik's influence in places that you never would have thought of it. Okay? Wikipedia, yeah, okay, well, certainly we're going to use Wikipedia. But the Wikipedia entry on Paik turns out to be about a band from Toledo called Paik. I was like, what? You know, who knew there was a band from Toledo called Paik? Um, so uh, if you look at the, uh, the re-Paik, now this is a, a different version that actually talks about Paik and his influence. Um, some people said, well, there's no connection or whatever. But some people said, hey, this is really cool. Paik would have loved this. He was all about, you know, kind of instantaneous, momentary, uh, jarring uh, combinations, recombinations, channel zapping. And, and he would have loved that kind of like serendipitous uh, connection uh, that uh, Google found. So, again, these are forms of distributed scholarship that don't kind of end up just in some dusty hall. Anyone who has this bookmarklet can see them wherever they go on a page. So uh, that suggests uh, a way perhaps out of the kind of um, you know, Google uh, you know, kind of hierarchic uh, mode. Because ultimately, you know, if, like I, 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 I have you know, some standing in the field. I got quoted you know, 11 times in the New York Times, right? And 11 times in like, you know, Wired magazine. And my peer review committee comes back and goes, you didn't publish in any academic journals in the past semester. Like, yeah, you know, okay, I'll publish in a few. But I guess what I'm looking for is a, a kind of recognition that comes out of my work in networks, not in my contributing to killing trees. Um, and um, one of the ways to think about that is to think not about having these kind of returns with like, okay, here's how many peer-reviewed journals that you contributed to in the last you know, year, and then you get numbers next to your name. That's not a good way to view someone's influence. That's an excuse for not thinking, like, you know, representative democracy. <laughs> um, what we really need is something that shows a nuanced view of someone's contribution to the committee, or to the, to the network that they belong to, to their community. Do they have a lot of, you know, close ties with a small number of people and a lot of exchange there? Do they have a lot of weak ties with a greater number of people? How, do they, how are they related to that community? And uh, I showed a couple examples here. Um, I'll just very quickly do uh, another project. This is actually based on the pool. I picked a user, uh, Jolene Blay, my collaborator, just randomly out of the whole set. And um, this is a kind of um, grapher that says, okay, what, how does she contribute to the pool and how does she relate to other people? Well, it looks like she's contributed to one, two, three, four different projects, including the pool itself, some more strongly, some more weakly. If I open up the, uh, the degrees of separation a little bit more, um, I'll see who contributed to those projects with her. Uh, so now I'm getting, oh, well, John Apolito also contributed to the New Media website, and so did uh, Miroslav Liwosh, and Margareta contributed to EI, and Terence Lee contributed to Culture Shifter. I say, oh, okay, I see she's embedded in this larger system. She's, this is not a friendster situation where, oh, I got this friendster, I got that friendster. No, this is stuff you worked on, right? You actually had to produce something and put it in the pool. So it's more meaningful. Um, I can also, you know, open it up to uh, uh, even higher ratings and say, okay, how about the people that they contributed to, to they contributed to, to so on. I'm at like, uh, what am I, at five degrees of separation out of ten here now. And let's see what happens. If anything happens. Did I click on that? I think I did. 
Maybe I didn't. A beach ball happens. <laughs> Boing. Okay. Why did it take so long? Because there are so many damn connections. Okay? I don't know how many people. I'd have to count them. There's probably a dozen people that she's connected to now. So it's a good way to find people, but it's also a way to chart her influence in that community. All right. So what I've tried to show is that... Um, that the normal models of academia don't work for new media. The normal models of preservation don't work. The normal models of property don't work. But there are options. There are ways forward that we can use. And I hope that in the rest of our talk, we can talk about more of those. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, better or different from DIG? I mean, there's, a, there's network mania going on, and I'm seeing the same stuff in, in some of the work that you showed as you see if you work with Delicious or DIG, this, this, the, the mania of meta-tagging. We do it because we can, but we're producing like levels and levels of meta and super meta. So uh, I guess another way to ask my question is, so we keep measuring the stuff, but what's being produced, which if if the avant-garde had served a purpose in terms of art, let's say, and now it's actually a, a, a popular front that's using what had been avant-garde practice, well, that might be the nature of avant-garde, but how are you framing aesthetics? Uh, so is your question that, yet you seem to be two questions, what is... What's different about, say, the pool than dig and, and yeah. its variants? How, how is it that those don't do things? How don't dig and YouTube do new media art? The best things about network and P2P production and DIY. How, don't they just do it better than ten years ago when it was a different internet and we had a, a different kind of space for, say, an avant-garde or experimental practice? I think you can make an argument about well. This is how we look at the aesthetics about what Jody's doing, Mark Napier, et cetera. But now, can't we just say, well, YouTube does it better? I mean, I, I, this is, that's something that I was thinking of as well when I was looking at the, at the pool because I think that there was a problem with um, you know, early forms of net art in that it, it proposed behaviors, online behaviors, that didn't sync up to the way that people actually related to each other um, and behaved offline. And I think that these more successful platforms now, like Flickr, um, it's a photo album online, um, or MySpace, it's networking, or you view yourself online, or YouTube sharing. I mean, these are sort of ways to amplify, um, you know, ways that we uh, currently work or interact offline. And so it's just, to me, I, I saw this issue in the pool and that it was proposing um, a kind of behavior that I don't know, like I, 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 I couldn't imagine interacting in the pool. So I guess I'm, I'm just sort of adding on to your, to, to, to what you're saying and saying, you know, do you see that as an issue and that you're proposing a new kind of behavior? In, in that it's more complicated or that you don't like the interface as much or why? Well. <laughs> it is, it is deliberately more complicated because it's attempting to, and, and, uh, 
imbricate people into a network, and and not a network like oh I have Maybe you know fifty fifty friendsters or fifty Facebook contacts, <clears throat> but a network of collaborators in in, in which um, I can find people who need to do things or I can respond to requests and so forth. But I think there's a there's a second issue there, and and I'm not saying that pool in pools like an alpha, so you know probably hopefully it will get better, um, but. Uh, there's a second issue there, which is, isn't, you know, um, is this different than what was happening early on with things like Jody and, uh, and, and projects where it was about sort of subverting expectations and screwing up as opposed to facilitating? And I think that's true, and I don't consider the pool an artwork, mm -hmm. but I do consider it a, a work of political design, is the term that we use in this book, community mm -hmm. weaving, that facilitates artworks and in most particularly makes the connections that are necessary for art to thrive. Because if you talk to the people from the early, you know, net art period, yeah. okay, we just had um, 0101, the, the sort of Italian net hackers over at the, uh, Stillwater at the University of Maine, and they were complaining about how early in the day people would invite them, and this is particularly sort of when Eastern Europe was, was opening up, and, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the mid and, and to the extent, some extent the late 90s, um, you would be invited to participate in some, you know, festival or event. It'd be some really like small-scale, cheap event uh, at some, you know, like uh, center in Ljubljana or wherever. Mm -hmm. And um, you'd show up, and there'd be like, you know, maybe one computer, and uh, if you're lucky, a projector and a small audience. And then everyone would just talk, you know, and and party and and get to know each other. And it was about that kind of personal connection. And as much as I love YouTube and Delicious, I mean, I use them all the time. I think they're great. I don't think they foster that connection, that personal uh, sort of imbrication in a network. And those connections don't always become face-to-face, -face, but in the early days of net art, they did. I personally still feel there's an important role for art that subverts and exposes the, you know, the dirty underside of machines and networks and so forth. Uh, but I think to, to foster that, to, to, to nourish the artists that produce it, we need to reinstate those close ties. It sounds like you're advocating for face-to-face, -face, which isn't a bad thing. But I think face-to-face -face is great. So then help me understand better from both of you, if you're talking about networks and aesthetic, let's just for a minute say, well, can we talk about a network aesthetics? What are some of the pieces that you point to? Like if we're going to, I don't mean to make art examples, but just nobody take this out of the room. Just pointing to a couple, because you know you should make art an example. It's itself, but for the sake of the conversation, if we're talking about 2006, because maybe it's just because I could see at this time, 1995, 96, 97, it it was um, there was friction, there was funniness, there was all this kind of hacker uh, sensibility. I'm having a harder time understanding 2006. There can be diversity, but how do we frame a conversation about network aesthetics or internet art? Because I hear a lot of talk about we have networks and we're facilitating networks, but what is some of the content that we might look at specifically? Or is that not a, a, a valuable question anymore? Yeah, I mean, this, this sort of gets to the heart of something that um, we at Rhizome are dealing with right now because, you know, the way that um, the way that people communicated or have communicated for the past 10 years on Rhizome is through 
these email lists. And but we're currently thinking, you know, what are the new ways that people can collaborate and interact? What are more timely forms for um, people to get together? Because email lists spoke to people at that time, right? And I don't want to, um, you know. We can't sort of fetishize rhizome and just say, okay, well, it, you know, what is special about it is that it was the harbinger of these artists. We have to keep innovating so that um, we bring in, you know, the new um, <coughs> Beth Coleman's or new Jodies or what, you know. So we have to, you know, continue to think about um, to think about uh, the, the, the how we how we create collaboration on our site. I mean, I think you know, there's certain. I, I sort of go towards you know popular social networking um, models, but um, then I don't want to, I would never want to go too much towards, you know, making Rhizome look like a MySpace or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think that, um, you know, ways to communicate, I actually do think happen through um, creation of meaning through tags. You know, I mean, I think that that's part, partly what underlies um, the metadata project is allowing people to sort of create meaning collectively and sort of communicate around that. Um, so I think that's one example. And I mean, even, you know, but in, in terms of, you know, a networked art aesthetic, I mean, I think that, you know, da certain data visualization projects, you know, that sort of visualize how relationships are happening, or for instance, the 808 project that, that I brought up, I mean, these are new forms of, or art that's responding to, you know, networks um, as they're happening now online. Another example might be what's changed between the networks back then and networks now. A mm -hmm. lot more people on now, a mm -hmm. lot more right. younger people, a lot more information, and the government, and I don't mean like, you know, physicists, <laughs> is on now, right? Um, so the issue of sort of uh, the amount of data, not just that can be outed, but also can be mined and surveilled. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, one of the things we're seeing now is a reaction to that state of the network. Uh, two examples, one from someone who calls himself an artist and one who doesn't. Mm -hmm. Jonah Brooker Cohen created something called Status Play based on iChat. Okay, so mm -hmm. iChat's a relatively recent phenomenon, right? And um, it exposes, uh, in iChat you can choose you know, your status and then other, in many instant messaging programs it, it then broadcasts that to the rest of the world so you could say, you know, I went to lunch or, you know, I'm ready to talk. Well, he created a program that instantly uh, either put there the last thing that you cut and paste from your clipboard which could be very revealing. Um, you know, all kinds of other kinds of private messages from the tunes you're listening to to um, you know, various kind of uh, aspects that just happen to be available to your computer's processor. So that was kind of a, 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 a play on that, mm. uh, coming from someone who calls himself an artist. But one of the other things that's happened is now we've got all these people on the Internet who don't call themselves artists, mm. and yet they may make art. And that's why kind of you know, at the edge of art, that's the idea. The edge of art is not where we used to think it was. Um, it was in the gallery, then it was by net artists who may or may not have referred themselves as artists. Now maybe kids. You know, the kind of turnaround of the mosquito, who knows about the mosquito ringtone? Okay, all right, so what was the mosquito ringtone? Um, the sound that uh, was supposedly made to annoy these uh, youngsters to stay away okay. from the bodegas in England, and then it was turned around on its head so that people, the younger generation, actually grabbed it. Right. Only people couldn't hear the sonic uh, frequencies that it was projecting, and they thought it would annoy the kids, but the kids actually made it into a ringtone, you know, so they kind of turned it on its head. Yes? Well, Do I pass? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, John, are you about to speak, John, or can I? I was actually going to play the... Okay, you uh, go, I'll just find it. Um, 
And anyone who's older in the audience and still wants to be cool, just say you can hear it. I was just going to say that... Oh, stop, stop. Don't do it. I was anyway. going to... <laughs> so 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 that so that was the, what, what was the trick there? So so the first thing is that that, that uh, an annoyed uh, store owner you know in England created this to drive the the, the kids away who were like hanging out. So the kids in return turned it into a ringtone that you know that their parents couldn't hear on their, their cell phone, and and that to me is a fabulous act of art, uh, and, and it came from people who probably don't consider themselves artists. I I also think that. Um, a really, really big um, trend, or whatever you want to call it now, is um, internet art going offline. So, um, you know, just artists, people, networking space, um, role-playing games with network devices, you know, wearing technology. I, I think that um, this is this is some of the most exciting kind of networked aesthetic practice. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, would agree. I mean, some of us participated in the Come Out and Play Festival in New York a couple yeah, of weeks exactly. ago, which was big games. And big games or ubiquitous games, you're using real-time, face-to-face communication. You're using some things that are networked over an Internet. You're, using, you're facilitating play in real space using different modes of communication, and some can be cell phones, some can be you talk. I mean, I have to figure out how to get information from you. And Ivan Asquith, he just told people he wouldn't give them drinks because he was bartending. So unless they gave him information, he wasn't going to give them a drink. And I thought, oh, that's good. Brute, brute forth, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So I mean, there's, I see constant development here. But can do either of you want to talk a little bit about, um, I don't want to over-determine it, but maybe what had been a certain kind of network moving into a kind of game space? Because it's always been playful, but you, you could also say that maybe avant-garde practice has also always been playful. But would you say, is there something you want to say about this game paradigm that is definitely um, coming into things? What, one of the things about it is um, big games, they don't necessarily um, build themselves as art or performance or art events. And they lend themselves extremely well and easily to marketing campaigns. Microsoft, I Love Bees, a couple other people, like the places they work best are with like these kinds of programs and people who want to sell things, but they want to do clever marketing instead of just putting an ad up. Well, then again, there are people who deliberately fight that. Like, you know, Mr. Bob of Flash Mob fame, who said he never <laughs> gave his real name because he was worried that then people would kind of, you know, hire him to do some immersive marketing for the new Applebee's or something. <laughs> right? So um, th- there are ways to 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 resist um, that urge, but but games are extremely seductive, yeah. and in fact, um, you know, I think uh, 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 Henry Jenkins writes about the flow of games. So that's the uh-huh. sort of like things that get you in there. Uh-huh. Um, Jolene Blay has a chapter on games in here that takes the opposite tack. That says that what makes a game an art form is a rest the opposite of flow, when it stops you in your tracks and pushes you out of the game mm-hmm. and makes you aware of this box that you've been in playing it. And there are games that do that. There are artist-made games that do that, and there are commercial games that do that. Um, who here, like, can you talk a little bit, like, what struck you? Have you run into something online that you're like, wow, I have no idea what that is, but that stopped me in my tracks, like something that... I had that experience in the 90s in terms of stuff you would encounter mm-hmm. that people... Kind of, because the community we're framing as art, and now 
in some ways, I have that experience um, with stumble upon. Well, I mean, that's just web pages, but you know what I mean. Kurt, you, you, do, you run this. You run MetaMedia. I'm volunteering you. Amber, talk a little bit about some of the work you're, you're doing. Howard, this is, this, this is your, William, we're going to call on you also, so don't, don't go away. But, or, or anyone else, like we're all in this room because we're curious, I think, about some similar things. What is it that's struck you? Uh, well, I guess I, what struck me is um, you, uh, networks inherently are structural. So um, you're really, I think the question that, that I heard was, how do you make a better, how do you be make better net art than MySpace or YouTube? Mm -hmm. um, because what they what they do is very effectively build a structure, and then you know the question is, are, you know, art is. Um, I think that there's there's a difference there as we normally sort of conceive as art as content, and so how do you as artists create um, networks as a, as an art artistic as an art practice? Mm -hmm. I think that's that then becomes a question. I think. One interesting space for that is um, in doing a little bit of this, of this um, creating networks or creating um, online user-generated communities, uh, user-generated content communities, um, is uh, looking at looking at MySpace and the critique of it. I mean, I think I think there's a very important space for critique there. You know, what kinds of personal information is being gathered? How is that being used? How is that being used to to market to people. How are people's rights being compromised? There are a lot of issues involved in, in there are a lot of um, areas in which MySpace and YouTube might be sort of in, involved and in participating in these power structures. I think artists can then look at ways to um, expose those. Um, so that's kind of my thoughts. Any feedback? Karen, are you gonna, are you gonna add to this conversation? You probably have a few things on your mind. Tom's reply to Lauren's question before well, the, question you, the question you posed at the end of your talk. Ah, uh, yeah. We were going to get to it, maybe. Which oh, right. Relationships right. between art institutions and. Oh, and, and like whether internet art should right. be in a and museum, I, that kind and of thing. Well, well, this is a whole. I'm I'm really excited by this network aesthetics idea, and I want to plug a couple of good projects. But we can move let's, to this. Let's, let's, now let's, let's go ahead and do that because yeah. I, I think that is a really interesting question. Well, you know, I I think that the, that all of these questions warrant their own um, conversations. I mean, just what you brought up and what you brought up too. We we had um, I organized a panel in New York called that Aesthetics 2.0, which I just talked about, and a big uh, question that ran through it was. What's the difference between creativity and art online? And um, and again, you know, it was something that people were just um, you know puzzling over. And I think that artists working online, like Michael Bell Smith, I didn't show him, but also Corey, it's um it's it's difficult, you know, because oftentimes they're sourcing you know creative material um, from the internet in their work and making it their own, you know, in in an art context. So. Um, I think that, that that's difficult, but I think that there is also there is a level of critique that has to be involved. For instance, you know, with with you know, what interests me about all of these, um, you know, about new media is that these are increasingly tools always that we're we're using in our in our lives. And for instance, SMS. You know, I was thinking, when am I going to see a really great project about SMS and texting? And then I saw this project, textually.org. Have you seen that? It's a project in which. Um, this, I forget the artist's name, 
but he basically live gathers um, text messages and then he sort of graffiti um, projects them in light around the city and just kind of isolating them, you know, he's sort of hacking into networks um, and then isolating these messages um, and projecting them on buildings and it turns them, it sort of brings out, you know, their poetry. So even if it's like, how are you, you know, you sort of, there's a, there's a, a resonance to it, you know. So Isn't I mean, Maybe he's. I'm sure he's. The nice he thing was that it was projected like an apartment building next to windows, and then you could almost hear someone inside saying that it was like, like, like it's a food. speech bubble kind yeah, of thing. It was yeah, like a comic hmm. text. I don't know who he's coming. The guy who does the talk bubbles who speak in one of the colloquiums. I've forgotten what his name is. Do you remember the guy who? He's a designer. You, he was are, are you talking about the, the stickers? That's, that, that, yeah. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a different yeah. project. Yeah, it's yeah. not a it's not yeah. a media. But that's the stickers. Yeah. Textual healing. I'm sorry. Thank you. Okay. Um, but you know, I think that that's different from these you know network sort of role playing games in which people are playing out you know you know anxiety or desire or whatever is happening or or anger. But it's you know it's a sort of reflective and you know illuminating and made you stop and think about you know. This kind of communication. So if I'm going to be really crass about it, what we're seeing is, if we're look, if we're trying to trace something about network aesthetics, is network is going offline and it's stepping back into the real world, so we're having greater communication between online and off. Yeah. Okay. That's thanks. Beth. Okay. That's, that's, <laughs> I think that's. Put. I was like, oh. Okay. I could bring I got up you. something a little bit. Um, if I can find it from the annals of rhizome history, because again, rhizome has played a really important role. Uh, You've played here. an important role in rhizome, John. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so um, the one thing that I think does distinguish, I mean, I think um, MySpace actually leaves a lot to be desired as a network, but um, here we go. I think this is it. But um, uh, even well-structured uh, projects and, and, and um, and community interfaces aren't always artworks in my mind. Like I said, I don't think the pool is an artwork. But I think there, there can be community projects and networks that are artistic in the sense that they pervert, expose, twist our expectations about the technology. So for example, this is uh, something by Alex Galloway, one of the first uh, folks who worked on, um, worked on Rhizome and its network, called the Keiko Suzuki Slogan Generator. And let's leave aside what Keiko Suzuki has to do with this for now. Suffice to say that um, Rhizome's uh, emails, which are, the, are really the, have been the bread and butter of that community for so long, um, always end with a little uh, signature line saying, you know, this is from Rhizome, uh, you obey to the license, you know, whatever the terms are of, of use. And then underneath it had a slogan. And I don't even know what the first slogan was. But um, this generator allowed you to add your own slogan. And all you had to do is go there, put in your own slogan, and suddenly that would be the slogan for Rhizome that week or that month or, who, or that hour or minute until someone else put in another one. So people, uh, instead of, you know, if people had just used it for stupid stuff like I love Rhizome, it wouldn't have been an artwork. But people, of course, started to misuse it, as is the want of the Rhizome community. So you got things like, you know, um, underneath where it says, you know, uh, subscribers to Rhizome are subject to the terms set out in the agreement, and underneath it would say, except uh, for anyone over the age of three. You know, so it would kind of pervert the, um, the, the kind of um, examples. Um, you know, I love uh, tacos. Um, there are lots of things that were in here. Um, uh, but um, 
one of the things that was my favorite uh, uh, kind of intervention uh, was, um, let's see if I can pull it out for a sec, by Eric Salvaggio, uh, an internet artist who was pretty active on Rhizome in the day. I'm going to steal your version of this book, see if I can find it. Which is that um, when you went to the... When you went to the slogan generator, you typed in that form, and it had a drop-down of all the previous slogans, right? So uh, at one point, all these very strange uh, slogans started to appear, and they all had the words Y, or the letter Y, as in yes. And that letter Y was sort of like appearing everywhere, and no one could quite figure out what it, what it meant. But then when, um, oh, I should just do it on the board. Uh, when you went to the actual um, site, and use the pull-down to add your own uh, rhizome uh, sort of uh, 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 slogan, you saw that all these Ys actually added up to something. It was like uh, this. So each of these is like a separate line, but when you, when, you know how when you get a drop-down, you see all the lines at once. And what happened is the Ys added up to this. Right? So all these yeses, Actually, it was the word yes, now that I remember. All these yeses created a giant no. <laughs> so it, it, it allowed people, this crazy you know, signature generator, allowed people to completely screw with the, the mechanism. And for me, that was definitely a work of art. And, and yet, it, it's so stupid. All it is is like a pull-down menu. But it enabled people to, to do this really exciting stuff. Questions? Comments? <clears throat> Thanks, I'll be brief. Um, this doesn't really do it for me somehow. Um, I think largely um, when we uh, throw around cavalier terms like the word art, uh, we're at least beholden to something of a tradition of art, which I think even in the contemporary moment is reasonably worked out as uh, very rigorously treated. And I'm not, I'm not blaming you guys. I'm just saying that fundamentally the question I'd like to put out there is, why do you think that the word has itself uh, gotten this kind of allure? And without any real, uh, as I have ever found it, really substantive, academic, or rigorous, or systematic treatment or link with previous work, even very recent work, which um, covers a lot of the things that have been sort of uh, talked about today. And I'm thinking about medium and materiality, there's a lot of issues there. I'm thinking of uh, Martha Buskirk's book, oh, here she is. Uh, contingent object of contemporary art. There's like a really interesting bunch of treatments there about that kind of thing. Bill Arning's work, I think, uh, curating at the list makes really significant connections between the before and after, as it were, such that media and new media itself are seen less to be a sort of uh, a divisive break as much as there is a sort of a thematic connection, a continuation, or maybe even if you like theme and variation. So I'm just wondering the degree to which you guys uh, think that in itself, this sort of this reach for art uh, on, on, on terms that are, in my view, sort of uninformed or unanchored with previous work, um, would seem to be uh, called for, justified, interesting, you know, and in itself becomes its own conversation in absence of anything that came before it, as far as I could tell. Um, not to be controversial. Well, um, not to be uncontroversial, but. Um, I, I um, would not, I am not arguing that there is a divisive break with, between internet art and 
art historic, you know, art that has come before it or art that is next to it. I mean, in, in fact, the previous director, Rachel Green, um, wrote an excellent book called Internet Art, in which she um, makes really excellent connections with, you know, conceptual art, Dada, video. I mean, all of these, you know, these artists are not existing in a vacuum of just, you know, waking up one day and making the internet. You know, a lot of, in interestingly enough, you know, a lot of new media artists started out as painters and, you know, were invested in, you know, other other mediums. So, um, so I, I, I would say that there is totally a continuum, and I think, you know, perhaps John and I have tonight been, been um, isolating or illuminating things that are, or, or issues that are specific to, to internet art, but I would say that, I mean, there's a lot of artists on Rhizome who are very interested in making those connections. Um, I'm just thinking MTAA, for instance, who's this um, Brooklyn duo, they did a piece called One Year Performance Video, which was a um, reenactment of um, the conceptual artist Sam Say, is that how you pronounce his last name? But um, in which this, this artist, he blows my mind, um, he did these one-year performances. One, I mean, I'm, I'm sure tons of people in the room know about him, but of course, um, one was that he chained himself to the artist Linda Madelon for a year, and the one that they reenact is him um, keep, you know, putting himself in isolation in a room for a year. And they reenacted it by um, faking it, basically, through video. So they recorded themselves um, sitting in a room, bored, you know, reading, peeing, sleeping, you know, getting frustrated. And they recorded, you know, hundreds or so of these clips. It probably took them a couple of days. And then they put them into a database and programmed it to sort of run according to the clock so that it would simulate them living out um, a year in, in this room. And so this was a sort of direct homage to um, to his or reference to his work, and I mean, there's you know, I think that I think that um, that's that happens quite frequently. I don't know how John um, how John feels. Uh, well, I actually uh, I, I agree completely that's with you, and I've I've been um, that's hosted up in Stillwater actually. Mm -hmm. um, I I think that there are very strong connections, very important ones with the past, mm -hmm. but I do think there's a rupture, and I think the rupture is less from the point of view of of, of artists than it is from the point of view of folks who define art. Okay? So what were the definition, what, what this sort of tradition of definition of art do we have to draw on? Well, you know, we can go back to classical period and say it's about proportion. We can go to the Romantic period and say it's about being out of proportion. Um, but if we want to go to the most recent definition that, that pretty much had almost universal buy-in among all the major players of museums and galleries and so forth, it's Duchamp. It's saying if someone declares something to be art, in particular if it occurs inside the white cube of a gallery, then it is art. And this definition has been useful in certain ways. I think it's been very damaging in many ways. But it pretty much reigned from you know Greenberg through uh, you know the the latest biennials at the Whitney just demonstrate this. I think that's defunct, and I think that uh, it's not the artists who are kind of using that. I think it's curators who are using that. And um, I don't know if Bill would agree with me, but um, I find that this um, excuse for uh, sort of, a, a, oh, now we've got a kind of pluralistic art world has in fact reinforced the position of the curator because now they're the gatekeeper. Yes, anything in the gallery is art, but I control what comes in the gallery. And of course, there are artists and curators who, who break that model, but that's been the predominant you know, this sort of misinterpretation of Duchamp that it's simply a contextual kind of, you know, gatekeeped situation. And I think the internet just blew that away. 
Because there is no gallery lintel. There's no museum facade when you go to the web. There's no dot art domain. Thank God. You know, we've done, fortunately, we've been able to kill the dot museum domain, which is pretty much dead in the water now. And, and for me, that's a great thing. Because it means when you see something online, you have to decide, not some curator, whether you think it's art. That's the conversation I want to hear. <laughs> the artist I would most like sorry, to bring up to you, I, I'm really glad to hear this other side because I think there's a lot of that going on, but I'm not, I think that that's a market position comment, and I think that the market is so much what you're talking about, and the history of art has often been outside of those realms, and the artist that to me is most current in that is Banksy, and Banksy is both asking that question, perpetuating, pushing, you know, a piece just sold at Sotheby's for like $100,000, but here's someone who's not coming through those terms, the internet made him who he is on, on a brand level, let's say. So I, I would say that he is, the, the, in a way, the person who is at the forefront of that question for you because, you know, when he takes his own artwork and hangs it in a museum, or whether he's tagging on the street, do you have more of a problem with the tag on the street, or is the piece in the museum hanging as a um, stunt for you more interesting as a part of prank? And I think those are market questions. Right. I'm, not, I'm not coming from the market. No, I know, but the question of what is I'm art is a market question market. because they need to sell it. The person who sells oranges needs to define what an orange is so they know they're selling oranges. Yeah, that's not where I'm coming from. That's positivist. I'm actually specifically sp speaking to, and I think Beth broached the topic, of getting at the nub of some kind of an aesthetic, which at the, at the final, in the final analysis ultimately is going to fuel for the long term the distinctions between art as to whether you think there's a rupture or not. I agree with you whether there is or isn't. But fundamentally, it has to be defended on aesthetic grounds more than political or information science grounds. I hope so. Well, actually, as the sort of curator who's in this position, um, let me uh, talk a little bit about the sort of Duchampian legacy is that uh, the Duchampian legacy does also involve this institutional framework. And uh, one of the things about my practice as a curator is that um, a lot of the work uh, I see on rhizome or on turbulence uh, doesn't need me. Uh, it, 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 it gets from maker to audience without the institution. And uh, when you think about all the sort of framing devices, uh, I mean, we're in this hypermarket phase uh, with this arts, with the art fair as distribution system. Things get talked about because they appear at Art Basel Miami, and suddenly you have this whole network, and it's it's. So basically, the only role for the curator in this uh, is uh, for, for an institutional museum curator is the stamp of approval, and uh, and if you do put something or, or like have it or, or host it on the museum website, it gets this sort of stamp of approval. And you and being aware of that role is really perplexing. Like, how do you use that? How do you use that in a productive way? Because uh, I mean, when I think about Jody, uh, when I got to see that, uh, I've, I've gotten to see. Two institutional shows, where that work was projected. The one at I was one at IBM, and I saw one in. Uh, it was actually at the same time as a Basel Art Fair in Basel, uh, and I, um, and all of those things were like you, you know, were, were, that are meant to frustrate you when you put it into an exhibition space where there's all these things to help you, help you use it to approach the frustration level. And there's all these like, like, and I was on a, a a new media panel that was hosted at uh, a Brandeis a few years back. And I was next to Chris Tsukzebihai from the Media Lab. And I was just said, well, I think in some ways 
the only responsible role for the institutional curator is to step out of this and not uh, and to not try to figure out what our role is until the uh, and to sort of watch the system and see if there's anything that we can do to be useful. And he's like, no, no, no. We really need the institutional stamp of approval because when we're going to funders, when we're going to other sort of support systems, or when we're going to other institutions to try to get into something, we need the the player. And I'm as, as someone who's um, interested, and uh, I I almost have to be, have to be interested at the amateur level because my professional practice doesn't help anything in this discussion. Um. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, in this conversation, I, I keep on thinking that it comes back to the artists. I mean, I work with so many different kinds of artists, and they have so many different kinds of needs that are inflected by the kind of work that they make, you know, falling under new media, whether that's web-based or whether that is video or, you know, more, more object. And, you know, I think, you know, Rhizome offers a different... Um, kind of reward, right, because you're within a community space, but there's a lot of artists who are interested in an economic, uh, you know, in, in, in the rewards that the art world has to offer. So so just saying, you know, I, 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 it, to me it goes back to what the artists want, and I think there's a very wide range um, in this field. And then it brings me to asking you, you know, how do you feel as an, as an artist in, in relationship to working with um, galleries and being involved in the media? <laughs> I'm, I personally am quite resistant to the term new media and I think that as practice has gotten more integrated tons of work happens in galleries that has a whole media backbone but the work isn't about the piece of tech and I think that's a little bit throwback on my part but I'm comfortable with that because it also became uh, incredibly boring to just look at monitor art or look at something that's supposed to happen that in some ways can't happen in that space because it happens over time and it happens in a distributed way. And, I mean, you remember like the Whitney Biennials when they first put m computers in there? And you go for five minutes, but your friends are talking and you're going to go I mean, so in some ways to not to do a, dis uh, a disservice to the work, thinking better, and I think we are seeing better ways to um, enjoy enjoy that work on its own terms. But I, I think your question, it, it, there, there, st there still seems to be um, somewhat separate tracks in terms of aesthetics and what people talk about as new media and new media art. and. Mark Tribe, when we were doing a round robin about what are the questions for this conversation, Mark was really enraged. He's like, no, it's the same conversation now. The terms, they're, they're blurring, they're merging. It's really not relevant. And I don't think he's right. I think we're not yet at that place where we're talking about the same world. And I think John's advocating for sustaining some of the things that are crunchy, difficult, and excellent about some of those differences are, are, are worth listening to. I, I'm not so sure same is a good goal. I guess I wanted to ask Bill a question. Um, what, what, Bill. what was the role for... Because uh, <laughs> I, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, about the role of the curator, what what was the role of curate, um, curators and critics during um, fluxes? 
Well, I mean, I'm not a historian of, uh, of the practices, but there's been a lot of attempts historically to escape from having other people make decisions about where your art is and what it is. If you, maybe uh, the male art aspect, which is sort of uh, something of Lexus was something that could exist on its own. It didn't need the institutional support. Uh, and also uh, things like street art, uh, graffiti has a, a, a history, um, street theater, a lot of performance practice. We, we, there was a panel uh, uh, symposium here on theatricality on Monday over at uh, the visual arts program here. And John Jonas was speaking about, and, uh, and Judith Berry, about their work uh, in the 70s and, and very early 80s. And, uh, and they're saying that this, these things weren't being done in any sort of context at all. They were being done in lofts for invited guests. And I don't know about you, but when I think about that period when there wasn't uh, this possibility of some other larger career, I get really romantic about it. Uh, when you see the photos of Joan Jonas' performance in her loft, and you can recognize everyone in the audience as a major minimalist or post-minimalist or a composer or, uh, or, uh, or early theater person, I'm like, wow, that must have been just incredible to just be in this place where you know, everyone was a genius. Uh, and I know that probably wasn't the case, and, uh, but you know, there's a, a romance about it. So I think it's perfectly fine for forms to develop and blossom and flower. Yeah, but I do think there is, um, and, and the era of trying to squeeze new media into the institution by putting the computer monitor in the lobby and having like a certain group of websites, and we've done that in shows. I mean, I know like when, uh, when, when, uh, when we had the Race and Digital Space Conference, there was like, we had net, uh, computers which you couldn't go off this, this one devoted site so that people could experience the work. And it was always the thing about, well, why am I experiencing this? Why am I sitting in a crowded lobby where I can't have experience when I could be doing the same thing at home? There is, um, and, and also the other thing I'm interested in is uh, new distribution systems. I'm on the curatorial advisory board for Aspect, the DVD magazine, that has had a really interesting impact on the way video is distributed, which is also getting now corrupted and challenged by the market because uh, people are wanting to be able to make money off these important pieces and n nobody wants to give up control. Nobody wants to let things out there. Um, so in, in, I do think that we are now in a shift period. Uh, I don't think people are trying to do the uh, network computers in the museum lobby anymore. Uh, I haven't seen an exhibition format that uh, I mean, I, I, when, I, when I walk into museums and I see attempts to do something interesting in terms of new media, I, I'm always noting and then I start trying to also figure out the failings also and figure out well, what, where things are better. Um, I, so I'm not sure. Uh, basically, I, I, I think the role of the curator now is to really just watch what happens and see what use we can be. Uh, and I mean, of course, there's the other level of what we do in terms of writing essays and hoping or uh, lecturing and hoping to uh, give people insight. But uh, it's, it's a wait and see period, I think, at this point, until we, we, we get some new exhibition paradigm that actually makes sense for the work. Um, we just have a few more minutes. Other, other people? I mean, you can bring in your own particular perspective, like if you're doing computer science or engineering. Go ahead. No, I just wonder about using uh, Duchamp as a model for the rupture you were describing, because um, in a sense, aren't we talking about a period of historical response where you have a Dada prank uh, that then has later been declared art. And so mm. I, isn't a lot of what we're looking at now essentially prank? 
Um, and so I, I really wonder even about the relevance of the term art. Uh, the, re the relevance in to anything that happened after Duchamp? Oh, no, to, to a lot of, uh, yeah, to this, this border zone, this edge zone that you're talking about. Uh, well, I, I, for me, the problem uh, is that the, that border used to be controlled, policed. Uh, uh, the, the misinterpretation, what I see as a misinterpretation of Duchamp, became a pretext for uh, what seemed plural but was in fact controlling. And, and now, rather than a, a, a definition by, you know, kind of a gatekeeper, I'm interested in a functional definition. Um, I think, I think there, a lot of the work that you've seen today is prankish. It's funny. It's cute. It's, oh, it's perverse. It uses um, technology in ways especially that it wasn't intended to be used or social networks or whatever. But I, I, I don't think of it as, um, as, as, as trivial. Uh, and in, in, a, in a certain rigorous way, uh, Duchamp's putting a bicycle wheel in a gallery is trivial in, in, in what I might call you know, the kind of strongest, most interesting sense of that word trivial. But to me, uh, when someone creates uh, executable literature that's sp uh, a short story that's spiced with trigger words so that it will foil uh, the Echelon surveillance network, or when someone creates a DVD logo made of the, the code that can actually decrypt DVDs to, to sway a court case, those are not trivial. They are playful. They are perverse. But they affect the world. They're executable. So um, uh, Duchamp is still influential. He's very influential on these MTA guys. Yeah. But I don't think it's, I think his influence on, on, on museums was not as good as his influence on artists. Just a quick thing. I mean, when you say the word trivial, I mean, one of the things that, and I feel very jaded sitting here looking at all this stuff and saying, but I've seen that a million times before. Why is this one art? What makes this one special is every other, you know, MySpace linked, you know, little thing I've seen or from looking at, like, stuff my sister's friends sent that at the time I was like, that's kind of lame. And, I mean, not like they're all exactly the same and not to really criticize the particular things here, but a lot of what I see looks exactly like other things I've seen on the Internet. And especially, and not in particular here, but on sites devoted to art, there will be something from new media, and I will say, but that's on, that was on everybody's live journal for like three weeks, you know, all these different forms. What makes this example special is that, that they had no idea you could do this and that, you know, 500 people had done it, and so they found one and went, that's pretty cool. But when you've got 500 and they're all doing the same thing, is that still art? Is it all of them together that's art? Is it because every single person's doing it, does it somehow become trivial? I mean, are we maybe in a space where, because there's so much new information out there and so many different artists or, you know, creators on the Internet all work together, that everyone can be a creator, where maybe there's no, I mean, saying that anything is art or that maybe this could be art is so premature. We have such a small window at the total number of things out there that maybe there needs to be some more time with people deciding what is not particular art in new media or on the internet, but is just what the internet is, versus what is something that's special and stands out on the internet. I think that you know something that something that I'm having trouble with in this conversation is that I think that and I'm going to use a, a, a term you used before is that I think that the field is big enough now that it can accommodate difference and 
different opinion and different artist needs and um, different types of works, you know, and, and so, I mean, I think there is, the field is so rich that even though you may not, you know, it can accommodate different sort of, I think, tastes and, I mean, and also just to, to, to go back to um, this, you know, this question of um, can it exist, uh, you know, which brings you back to this question of, you know, how can it exist in a gallery? I mean, I really think that, you know, over the past 10 years, you know, new media has, certain parts of new media have been mainstream. They exist like art without, you know, new media as a heading in galleries, right? And, um, you know, that that is one thing. I mean, Rhizome's core value is in a community that is on the edges, right? I mean, that is what we serve, but we also serve to, to support this kind of practice that's reflecting networked or online culture in, in galleries. So, I mean, I'm just trying to say that I think the field is broad enough that it can't be dismissed and um, that it's, 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 it's operating in a lot of different kinds of contexts and a lot of different kinds of forms. Yeah, I think what she is getting at at some point is also the same thing that, for instance, the dumpster is right now, the, the metal piece that's been acquired by the Tate and is, has a stamp of the Tate on it and it's art, but there is We Feel Fine and it's almost exactly the same as the dumpster, or it looks the same as the dumpster anyways. Why is the one art? Why is the other one not art? And it speaks, to me, it speaks to the power that institutions still have today. Right. And it's all really nice to talk about how it should be, but we have the world here in front of us as today, and it's the question how you get from one point to the other um, that is really interesting to me. Well, to continue the dumpster metaphor, I think that's garbage. I think the notion that because the Tate acquired something or commissioned it or features it on his website that that makes it art but is, it, is but ludicrous. But it is for you maybe, but for the public at large, what is in the museum is art. They don't you don't don't you agree? Well, I, I guess are you asking what it what is the case or what should be the case? No, I'm, I, I for me, what should be the case? Okay, we got two options here, right? We have uh, uh, the Tate says here's the art, here's what's art. Mm -hmm. And all the dutiful people who know about the Tate, which represents a tiny fraction of netizens, right, go to the Tate and go, okay, I've seen art. You know, now I know what net art is. Or people who go to individual sites and are perhaps confused, oh, is this art, is this not? I saw it on MySpace five times last week. Um, some people will say, wow, that's cool. I've never seen an you know, animated GIF mashup. Whoa, or, whoa, I see that all the time. Every individual seeing a site in isolation without an institutional stamp has to make a functional definition. Does this serve as art for me? Does it serve the function of art? Do we rather have that world of confusion where all these individual people have to make all these personal decisions or a world of absolute certainty where I go to the Tate and I go, okay, I, got, I know now there's five works of art and I've seen them. Of course I'd rather have confusion. Yeah, of course we absolutely want the other, like the one, but how many people do you think right now make consciously decisions for their own, for them, themselves, like this is art, this is not art. I think today the majority of the people still rely on what institutions say that's art for their understanding of art, even though I would love to have like the other option. Yeah, but how many people do you think 10 years ago were going to have a, a, a huge movement in the United States that the majority of internet users make things and post them? Exactly. Ten years ago, was that so? Really I mean, it's a very hopeful yeah. situation to be in, and I, I think it is hopeful. I have hope. Well, I I'd just like to say that uh, it's probably not helpful, although it's been bashed around for a long time, as to where you go in terms of what you're convinced is and is not art. 
that, that question is no longer validly one that's being answered. The last person who tried to sort of answer that, Greenberg had his head handed to him <laughs> very roundly in the second the third part of his career, right? So if someone as an intellectual powerhouse such as he writing about avant-garde and kitsch or the newer Laoquan or whatever is uh, fundamentally found to be um, pure and delicious and nutritious like milk but fundamentally comes at it with, a, with an expiration date, eventually it's going to be something that doesn't work because we're in mo mobile and changing times. So maybe we should reconfigure the question not as to what is and isn't art, but fundamentally what does and doesn't work in, sp in specific contexts. And one of the things that certainly does work that we know for a fact is that um, there, is a, there is a fundamental structuration in art that begins with sort of what you could call street art, low art, uh, you know, graffiti, performances, uh, aleatory things, and then there's something way up high in the in a highly, you know, uh, um, conservative bastions of the Tates, and then things somewhere along the lines, which has something of a, either a condensation or a percolation def effect, depending on where you go, in regard to the, the, the trajectory of artists. So that we could turn around and then say, well, what is it that creates an artist who goes from a nobody to a somebody overnight? Is it something like, let's say, you want to pick a Warhol, or maybe even a Morris Lewis? Uh, and I would say that a large part of that has to do with the work that maybe somebody like, like Bill or Martha is doing, fundamentally like a Michael Fried, basically made a Morris Lewis. Morris Lewis wouldn't have been really the great artist that he was turned into had, had not Fried written so extensively, so systematically, and so rigorously about his stripes, in the same way as we know the situation between Greenberg Pollock. So I think that in large part, fundamentally, something about the institution has to come out and reach in a sort of a larger kind of circumference the work of the text, which, although I appreciated the sort of the cavalier take on this is too many academics, I do think that the academic does focus a specific optic that raises the level of consciousness and perceptuality about work that then allows it to then be discussed in a higher sense that didn't exist before in contexts such as the gallery or the collector's sort of living room, you know, Broida, or uh, in the museum. Uh, what do you think? I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, it's an interesting perspective. Briefly, I think that the question is, who is served by that? And we have to recognize that there's a difference between uh, fostering some kind of uh, recognition of art as the word art. Like, oh, you know, suddenly someone, you know, uh, the blue-haired ladies who visit at the Guggenheim, oh, yeah, okay, that's art now. Versus helping art be made by whatever name it's known by artists, by whatever name they are known. If you talk to people from the abstract expressionist generation, my dad was one of them, okay? It's just like Fluxus. We think, oh yeah, Pollock, de Kooning, well, you know, Jean, Franz Klein. <coughs> there were no markets interested in them. There was no gallery scene. They created their own galleries, the Tanager Gallery, the Hansa Gallery, the 10th Street scene. It was all the same crowd. It was not many more people than you can fit in this room. They all knew each other and they made work for each other. There were no people writing about them yet and art flourished. Afterward, well, I'm, you know, I'm really not so sure. The recognition of art flourished. I believe in writing about, recognizing. I think recognition networks on the internet are very interesting and offer a complementary or alternative model to museums. But in terms of actually helping artists, I'm not sure that you know Clem and Michael Grieve and Fried and all those guys did that much to, to help the scene. Well, I, I invite you all to um, come to Rhizome and hash it out with us. <laughs> yes, we're, we're, we're out of time. Thank you so much for coming. You're, and you're Thank you all. Thank you.